0: about when you hear the word Christianity. You think when you hear the word Christianity. What what do you believe maybe perhaps comes into the minds of your, your co-workers or your friends or your family members? What do they think when they hear that word Christian? Among the most common perceptions held uh, by young non-Christians in America... They believe Christianity is judgmental, hypocritical, old-fashioned, and too involved in politics. Yet Christianity is not a philosophical system like Buddhism or a a set of moral codes like Islam or a set of rituals as some professedly Christian churches present themselves. Mm -hmm. Christianity as the name implies, is fundamentally about Christ. So how do we learn about Christ? How do we learn about Jesus? Well, perhaps we could go to the library. Go there and we could look up, search the name Jesus. And and I'm sure we would be overwhelmed with the uh, uh, sheer volume of text that we would find. Perhaps we could travel together to a Christian bookstore. It's a Christian bookstore, and perhaps there we could uh, find some volumes on Jesus. But in both cases, at best, we would really just be reading someone else's interpretation on who Jesus is. That doesn't mean that those works are particularly useless, but they don't really get at the heart of who Jesus is. Now, any good historian would tell you that the best way to uh, figure out or to learn about a historical figure is to go to primary sources, to go to, you know, original sources. So, so perhaps we could go to a great, uh, you know, a great Roman theologian, a great Roman historian who who wrote around the time Jesus lived. Or, Or perhaps we could go to an aristocratic Jew who wrote during the first century in Judaism. Or perhaps we could even go to some ancient text written by the early Christians, right? There we could listen, there in the first and second century, from those early Christians and what they believed about Jesus. But none of these men actually witnessed Jesus. None of these men actually had access to Jesus. A better approach to understanding who Jesus is would be to go and talk to those people who actually witnessed Jesus. the, the, If you will, the eyewitnesses to Jesus of Nazareth. And friends, to do that, we turn... To four books that are in our Bibles. Four biographies, if you will, of the life and ministry of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to turn again to one of those particular biographies of Jesus, and that is the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. The second book, the second Gospel, in your Bibles. And there, we're going to go to that text and seek to figure out who Jesus is. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. If you weren't able to be with us last week, we began a series uh, of studies in the Gospel of Mark. Mark. Uh, beginning with chapter 1 and verse 1 through verse 8 last week, we saw something very clearly. Mark is writing about one person. Though the story is filled with many characters, there is one person who stands above the rest, and that is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. This morning we continue through this narrative in Mark chapter 1, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. The point of these verses and what I hope you will see is the point of this message is that Jesus is the unique Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Verses 1-13 through 13 of Mark's Gospel are a, an introduction of what Mark will seek to prove through the narrative that he tells. Uh, through the eyewitness accounts of Peter, Mark records to us what Peter saw and witnessed about Jesus. And he tells it to us, And the one thing that he wants us to see this morning is that Jesus is the unique Son of God. He continues to answer the question that we came to the text with. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now remember, Mark's answer is that Jesus is the Son of God. And this morning, I want to just give you three words to kind of hang your thoughts on. When, when, what, three words that kind of help us to, to prove Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Jesus was anointed. Jesus was affirmed. And Jesus was approved. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. He was affirmed by His Father. And he was approved by temptation in the wilderness let 's look first at anointed by the spirit last week we saw in the text that that John is giving up, that Mark is giving us a picture of jesus baptism or the preparation uh, for jesus 's coming and we saw in the text that that Mark told us that all of Judea and all of Jerusalem was going out to be baptized in the River Jordan by John, and so uh, he paints this picture of these masses of people from the from the, the city of Jerusalem and from Judea coming down and being baptized outside the city in the River Jordan. The the upper class, the the powerful tribe of Judah is coming out, awaiting their king to come. The the, the upper elite, if you will, the upper echelon of Zion. This, the holy city, the people, the, 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 the wealthy, the famous, the, the, the great city of the king, right? You know your Old Testament. The great city of the king there in, in Jerusalem are coming out. These elite people are being baptized by John, turning from their sins and trusting in God. This week we see something vastly different. We don't see the, the great and the mighty coming out. But Mark focuses on just one that came out. Mark tells us of this one who came out. Uh, this, this Jesus from Nazareth. Nazareth of Galilee. This hillbilly, if you will. Nothing cut great comes from Nazareth. An obscure city. With no great history, no great king. It doesn't even get an honorable mention in the Old Testament. It, it's nowhere to be found. This redneck from the, from the boonies comes out, right? To be baptized in the Jordan. But friends, this wasn't just an ordinary Israelite from Nazareth. John gives particular laser focus that though there were many, there was just one that mattered. There was just one. Where there were many, there was just this one Israelite. And friends, what we will see through this gospel is that what matters most is this one Israelite. For this one Israelite is the new Israel. He is the one who fulfills the prophets of old. And he is the one who will represent the many. Why was Jesus on that shore? I mean, if you really begin to think what John is doing... And then consider what Jesus is doing in this narrative. You begin to question Jesus' actions. You begin to wonder, Jesus, do you not understand what John is doing? John is baptizing sinners. Right? John is baptizing those in rebellion and against God. Is Jesus a sinner? Was Jesus in need of of John's repentance? What is Jesus doing there? I think Jesus most clearly is identifying Himself with sinners. Remember, repentance is turning from sin and turning toward God. Where Jesus didn't need to turn from sin, He was turning toward God. He was making a declaration that He was going to obey the Father's will. That He was going to go God's way. And it's a reminder for us this morning that Jesus lived our life. Jesus did everything that we should have. As Matthew Henry has just captured beautifully, he, Henry, Matthew Henry says this, Jesus took upon Him Himself the likeness of sinful flesh that, that though He was perfectly pure and unspotted, yet He was washed as if He had been polluted. Imagine the sinless Son of God washed as if He had been polluted. And thus for our sake He sanctified Himself that we also might be sanctified. Jesus is in those dirty waters of Jordan so that you and I might be cleansed. We see in this passage that as Jesus is baptized in the Jordan by John, upon his coming up out of the water, in verse 10, Jesus sees the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him. Jesus is the audience for which the Spirit is coming. Mark doesn't tell us much about anyone else that perhaps may have seen him, though Matthew and Luke tell us more. Mark's focus in this particular instance is to demonstrate Jesus' anointing. Mark just points to and says, he was anointed by the Spirit. Mark just says, that's sufficient. You don't need to know anything else, but know this, that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. And I want to show a particular thing here, why this anointing is so important. you're considered, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, yeah, he identified with sinners. Okay, got it. Is that really it? No, I think this is much more. I think Jesus is doing something here to fulfill God's promises in the Old Testament. Mark tells us that the Spirit came like a dove. Now, some have taken and ran with this passage and, and really misinterpreted this passage. I want you to note what it says. He says that when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him, that is Jesus, like a dove. It doesn't say He came as a dove, but like a dove. That is, the point is how the Spirit came, not what the Spirit looked like. Right? So the spirit is not a dove. It does not look like a dove. It does not, it, it, none of those things, right? Doves do not represent the spirit. Okay? So, Mark, so we'll be careful when we read our Bibles that we seek to understand what it's saying and why it's saying it. So the, what mattered was how the spirit came, right? So the spirit didn't come crashing down like some, some crazy wild birds. You know, if you've ever been out around birds, that's what they, they just swoop down, right? But if you've ever watched a dove, a dove is graceful. Yep. A dove hovers, if you will. Right? And so the picture is how the Spirit, the Spirit came and hovered over Jesus. It came gently and peacefully upon Jesus. And, and the picture is of the Spirit coming. Why? Why? Why did the Spirit come? Why did the Spirit come? Oh, friends, if, if we just knew our Bibles better... This would ring in our ears. Isaiah 42, one. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. When Mark's readers heard this read aloud that Sunday morning, they heard Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 42, one being fulfilled in their midst. They heard it. The spirit has come. Oh, friends, if we just knew our Bibles better. In Isaiah 64, 1, we're told throughout Isaiah, really beginning in, verse, in chapter 40, on through the end of the rest of Isaiah, it's just these unending visions of God, at one after another. And, and towards the end, there, there is God's judgment coming upon the world. And so it intensifies. And then naturally, you have people responding to this information. So in chapter 60, it really begins to intensify God's judgment, His coming. He's coming again to judge the world. And so you have the people crying out in Isaiah 64, Oh God, will you come? Oh God, will you rend the heavens and come down to us and save us? And the heavens were rend. Open and the Spirit descended like a dove. Isaiah is being fulfilled in the midst of Jesus' baptism. He has come in the person of Christ and he has come to make things new. He has come to fulfill the promises of God and Jesus' first coming isaiah 64 is about the end of time and jesus if you will starts the clock when he shows up that day in jordan the end of the world began in jesus's coming and we have been on a slow march to the end since jesus came and he marks the beginning of the end of this world But, it's the beginning of a new world. Jesus has come to inaugurate a new world that He will reign victorious. And as we'll see next week, it's a kingdom that He will reign. The tearing of heaven reminds us that we are separated from God. The fact that the heavens were torn open reminds us that, that we, by very nature as sinners, are separated from a holy God. Mark does something quite incredible here. He bookmarks, if you will, his gospel. It begins with heaven being torn, and it ends with a curtain being torn. It's the only the only two times he uses that word, being torn. He begins and ends with this pick this this tearing of something, right? Something that's torn. Why didn't he say cut? He could have said the heavens were cut open, and Jesus, you know, the Spirit came. He says it was torn. Why? Because something that's torn can't be easily put back together. What God is doing in Christ isn't that we can access God, but that he can access us. The God of the universe has come in Christ and he has been anointed for ministry by the Spirit. Let's move on to the second. Why do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? Because He was affirmed by God, the Father. Jesus isn't just a Son of God, but Mark tells us that He is the Son of God. He is the One who has eternally existed and is equal with the Father. And Mark reveals to us that Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. Notice what he says. A voice from heaven came. You, are my beloved. That you is emphatic. It, you are my son. He didn't have to give us that. He, said, he could have said, My son, my beloved. Here's my son. But he says, You. This was for Jesus' ears to hear. I believe as Jesus hung on that cross, these words rang in his ear You are my beloved son more than the eternally the eternal son of god we see that he is eternally loved by god this isn't jesus, this is god's not like saying jesus i love you because of what you've done right this is the beginning of jesus ministry jesus hadn't done anything he went down to the jordan got baptized that was it right this is the beginning of his ministry in his flesh jesus at this point has really done nothing But yet God says it's His beloved. This passage is pointing to the eternal love of God. The eternal love that the Father has for the Son. And it's pointing us further to this unique relationship that the Father and the Son has. All of this language echoes from the Old Testament. Again, if we just knew our Bibles better, we would hear it this morning. Ring in our ears. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Or in Isaiah 42.1 again. Listen. Behold my servant, my Son, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon Him. And He will bring forth justice to the nations. Oh friend, what we see in Mark is the the servant of God promised by Isaiah meeting the suffering servant of God in Isaiah 53. And Mark mends them together in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. And we see this glorious picture of a chosen servant of God coming from the throne room of God to deliver His people. And all of this reminds us that sin is costly. That sin is costly. The need for the eternally loved Son of God to come in flesh to die for sinners reminds us that sin is costly. That sin costs the Father His Son. Friend, sin isn't something we just wink at. Nah, God will forgive. Isn't it something we just casually talk about? Sin is costly. This points further to our need for a Savior. Think about it. If you could save yourself, by some work or by some effort on your part, wouldn't it really make the Bible to be really kind of foolish? Isn't it kind of foolish that Jesus did all this? I mean, if we could do it ourselves, if we could somehow earn God's love and favor, doesn't it make Jesus' work somewhat void? Why? Jesus, what are you doing here if we can do it ourselves? But the point of Jesus' coming is to declare to you today that you can't do it. There is nothing you can do to save yourself, save Jesus Christ. Redemption is none other than being wrapped in the eternal love of God for His Son. When sinners are saved, it is because God loves His Son. And nothing more. That is why God saves sinners and God's love for you then isn't based on you. Amen. God's love for you is based solely upon one thing and one thing only. God's love for his son. Amen. For in this passage points to our need for a savior and our need for Christ We see that the Son of God has been anointed for ministry by the Holy Spirit. That He has been affirmed by God the Father. And third and finally, we see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was approved by overcoming the temptations of Satan. That He was approved by overcoming and resisting Satan's temptation. Notice with me in verses 12-13. through The emphasis here on this passage is that the Spirit is driving Jesus into the wilderness. That the Spirit of God, He's being baptized, it's a wonderful, glorious day, His Father declares who He is, and then all of a sudden the Spirit drives Him into the wilderness. Mark uses this to indicate that all of this, from beginning to end, is God's will. Did you hear it in Isaiah 53? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It. it was the will of the Lord. Next time someone asks you who killed Jesus, you can politely tell them that his father did. His father did. All pointing us to the need for Christ. In a few words here, Mark paints a vivid picture. Compared to Mark and or Matthew and Luke, Mark only gives us a few words of Jesus' temptation, but his point could not be any clearer. The eternal Sir, Son of God was sent into the wilderness that he might deliver his people. Jesus was sent further into the battle, the battle. For our very souls. The son of God who had, had joy, had, who had enjoyed eternally the warmth of his father's love is abandoned in a garden outside of the garden. Just as Adam and Eve were propelled into the wilderness, just as the Israelites were propelled into the wilderness, just as Elijah went into the wilderness, so the new Israel goes into the wilderness. So the new Adam goes into the wilderness. Jesus faces the greatest darkness, this same darkness that we face in our lives, so that he can reign victorious over darkness. The point is clear by Mark that this isn't just some little plane out in the dirt by Jesus. Jesus isn't just hanging out in the wilderness cuz he's bored. This isn't like the latest, you know, episode of Survivor where people are sent out to see if they can get through it. Jesus is sent out into a cosmic battle that has been going on for centuries and finally and fully in Jesus Christ victory will be won. The new Israel has come. The new Adam has come to defeat the serpent. Finally and fully in Christ, the new Israel has gone again into the wilderness to face the 40 days. Has gone to face the immense temptation and persecution. But where Adam failed, Jesus endured. Where Israel turned from God, Jesus trusted in God. And we see the results from it. He was in the midst of the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Mark doesn't tell us Jesus won. Oh, Mark wouldn't do that to us. Because Jesus didn't win that day. No, Jesus would win another day. The battle would continue. And we'll see this battle continue over the weeks ahead. But friends, I want to remind you this morning of one thing. Evil is real. Jesus doesn't go out and face a mythical figure Created by a bunch of bored humans He goes and faces the ancient serpent He goes and faces Not some red-skinned little horned creature with a pitchfork But He goes and faces what the Bible says Is an angel of light And He goes out and faces in this cosmic battle And this narrative reminds us of the seriousness of sin Jesus wasn't facing just some ordinary temptations that day. No, Mark is clear. He didn't just face three temptations. He faced immense temptation for 40 days. And in fact, the way Mark says this is that Jesus' temptation by Satan didn't end. It went on. And though Jesus was delivered from that wilderness all through His ministry, He was continuous, continually being tempted by Satan. We see that the eternal Son of God came down to defeat this ancient serpent. To finally defeat our ancient foe. The one whom God promised would come. In Genesis 3.15, the Gospel is declared from the lips of God Himself as that serpent is cursed eternally. God says one day there will come a seed of the woman. One day there will come a child. One day there will come one of Eve's children. And when he comes, you will bruise his heel. (laughs) But he will crush you. He will crush you. And friends, on the cross of Calvary, we see the God of the universe come to crush finally and fully This ancient serpent, he has come in the person of Christ to suffer the greatest temptations any man would ever face and ultimately to die the greatest death anyone has ever faced. Because there on the cross, Jesus defeated our ancient foe, Jesus Christ, the son of God, anointed by the spirit, affirmed by God, the father and approved by overcoming temptation he is our king he is our lord and we are to worship him in closing just to help us understand better why this is so important i want you to just turn in your bible just a couple pages to mark chapter 11 turn just a couple pages to mark chapter 11 and we're going to conclude with this i going to expound it i'm going to explain it but i just want you to hear it mark chapter 11 beginning in verse 27. Why is this important? Why did we spend 45 minutes thinking about Jesus' baptism? Verse 27, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Him and they said to Him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, "Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Right. Did you hear Jesus's question? It was at the baptism, wasn't it? Yes. Where Jesus's authority as the Son of God, as the King was affirmed. It was there where the Spirit anointed Him that authority was given. It was there at His baptism that the Father affirmed Him with authority. And it was there following in the wilderness where He was approved as one who is worthy of all authority. So, was John's baptism real? Was it from heaven? You tell me. Was it legit? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are sinners. As we consider your Son who came... We are reminded of our own sinfulness. Father, that it came to this, that it came to you sending your eternal Son for us as sinners. Is our rebellion that much that it cost you your Son? Oh, Father, may we consider today our need for Christ every day. Christian or not, we need Christ. We need the blood of Christ to wash over our sinful lives. We need a Savior. We need a King who will lead us. Oh, Father, help us, I pray, to believe upon Jesus, to trust in Him, and to know that real victory, true victory, comes from the King of kings and the Lord of Lords. Father, help our unbelief today. For your glory and our eternal good, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.